Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 83. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and the Bernstein to my Woodward is Courtney Nguyen. <laughs> Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm doing well, and I see what you did there, Ben. <laughs> I see what I did there, too. Let's move on from that very quickly. It was an interesting week for us to both get back on the tours on separate coasts for you to do Stanford and me, Washington. How was it for you getting back into tour life after a few weeks off? I was rusty. Like, I definitely felt a bit of rust. Um, It took me, like, a couple of days. And I I had gone to Stanford, I think I was there, like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of qualies weekend just to kind of be there. I was doing some interviews and things like that. So I was just kind of getting slowly back into the swing of things. And, yeah, I mean, it was almost good. It was almost like the equivalent of playing qualies after a long break. And then when the first round hit, you were actually kind of already in a groove, whereas, like, other people were playing their first matches on the yeah. first round and took them a little bit of a little bit of time. So, yeah, it was good. The weather was beautiful. The players were in a good mood. Um, it was a great field out in Stanford. Also got to just kind of reconnect with, you know, friends that you haven't seen for a few weeks um, in the press room. So all in all, a very lovely week at the Bank of the West Classic. It's very true what you say about qualities because I pretty much... Both of us, me in particular, I think I try to do qualities almost every time I go to a tournament, especially it's like slams. I mean, I get to Australia like way before most media do for Melbourne because I always, I don't know, I just always feel like just that, like if you're there for qualities, that by the time the real show gets underway, that you're already sort of at a running pace when other people are trying to get started. Yeah, you're in rhythm. Yeah. You're in tournament rhythm, you know, and and there is a rhythm to covering events and and just even just like figuring out what time to get there and, you know, figuring out, okay, okay, so, you know, every tournament's different in terms of layout. So am I going to be able to watch it in the press room or outside of the press room or do I have to be courtside or how does this, this or that work? Where are the best photo angles? Where are the best, you know, things like that. Just kind of if you give yourself a little bit of time and get all that sorted out, you know, before all the big guns take the court, uh, you're kind of ahead. So it was uh, it was good. No, but I but I enjoyed it. How was DC? DC was fine. It's a smaller tournament than the ones I've been doing in Europe. Well, I guess not smaller than Birmingham, but it's definitely smaller than the slams I'd done or Italy. And it didn't have any um, of the real marquee big players on either side, including a few disappointing pullouts near the end in terms of Bouchard and Dimitrov both pulling out. But no complaints. It was, hap- it was a nice a small tournament, and it's good to have those smaller ones to keep you grounded and to get you, you know, player access that you wouldn't have normally. You know, people are much more relaxed at small tournaments generally and in a chattier mood sometimes. So in terms of getting gathering acorns for the US Open, not a bad thing to start at a non masters type event. Definitely. So probably the player to watch last week at the tournaments we were at was Serena Williams, who was at Stanford. A lot of people were wondering what her attitude would be on court and off in what was her first tournament since the much-talked-about doubles meltdown at Wimbledon. Uh, Courtney, what did you see from Serena on court and off, and what do you think it means, if anything, for her going forward that she was able to uh, win the title there this week? I think it was kind of the perfect week for Serena um, returning in Stanford because it wasn't, you know, in terms of a run to the title, this wasn't the emphatic 
didn't drop a set, never was tested. Oh my gosh, Serena's like so good. Like, you know, uh, a week for her. This was, she was tested. You know, the match against Ivanovic in the quarterfinals, I thought was the best match of the tournament and uh, really tested her, especially when Ivanovic started to come back in the third set. And that was the moment you thought that Serena would blink and she didn't blink. She actually played better against Pe- Petkovic in the semifinals. Same sort of thing. Very tight first set on serve. And then at 5-5, she just ran away with it, winning uh, the last, whatever that is, eight games. Mm-hmm. And then another slow start in the final against uh, Kerber. Kerber. Um, so yeah, another slow start that she rebounded well from. So she had kind of a you know a good week in terms of the tennis. And then obviously I think the attention was on just the off court stuff. You know how did Serena look? How would, was she acting? You know how do you put you know that really bizarre and quizzical Wimbledon retirement behind her? Or you know when you talk to talk to her, but. She was on. I mean, I have to say, in her opening press conference, you know, during All Access Hour, that's the best I've seen of from Serena in a long time. I mean, maybe Rome, but maybe even before Rome. You know, she just was, whether it was forced, whether it was she was excited, I don't want to gauge that because I'm not going to read the tea leaves of, of Serena's mind and her motivations. But she answered the questions. She she never got defensive with being peppered a lot about the circumstances surrounding her Wimbledon, even to the point where she was just like, if you guys have a question, ask it. Like almost seemingly frustrated because the same question was being asked without kind of the killer question being asked, yeah. you know, like and which was kind of tiptoed around for a variety of different reasons. So what um, was she saying? Just people who haven't read with that, what she was saying, like what sure. were the sort of questions she was getting and what were her answers? Yeah, I mean, she basically reiterated it was a vir- it was a, a viral illness, that that is what the doctors have told her. She said she was not well when she took the court, but thought that, you know, it would be better once she was there. And, and the big thrust of what she said and what Venus said was that, you know, this is what Serena said. I'm not saying it's true or not. This is just what she said, is that you don't know how sick you are until you realize you're too sick kind of effectively and so she said she didn't warm up for the match that she was at home at the apartment or house at Wimbledon Village and literally when the match before them was about to be over hopped into the car and drove down to the All England Club like got out she was already in her match gear Hmm. um, and took the court so you know were there a lot of answers I mean were they satisfying answers probably not you know I mean well it depends If, if if you're inclined to take what is said at face value, then yeah, you know, the story is consistent and there's that. But if you are inclined to be a little bit more critical and, and a little bit more cynical and have your, your ear to the ground, then maybe, you know, it's not as. But for the most part, I mean, more important to me personally in terms of watching her and trying to kind of prognosticate the rest of her summer, I thought that she was just like, she had great energy throughout the week, you know, in press conferences, you know, she kind of had that pro face back on, which she, she really kind of lacked at Wimbledon at the yeah. French Open as well. So so that was all good to see. Good stuff. Other notes on Stanford players that happened while we wrap up this event. Venus did well. She made the quarters and beating Victoria Azarenka along the way and then pushing uh, Andre Pekovic in a long three-setter before eventually losing. Uh, Venus is nearing back to the top 20. Um, you mentioned her there in light of Serena, too. But I wanted to talk actually more about Azarenka, who we're recording this podcast late Tuesday night. Azarenka just got through a bizarre long match with Cornet in Montreal. But before that, she lost five of her last six matches. Azarenka is someone that people have a lot of questions about. Courtney, what did you get from her press or on court that sort of might point to where she's at these days? Because she's been a 
tough quantity to read, I think, lately. She is. Um, she is a tough, tough one to read. I, I remain convinced that, that she's not as fit as she once was. Okay. So I, I do think, and then that makes obvious sense, you know, coming off injury and things like that. She said that she's kind of looking more towards long term, that it's about getting match play and being patient, and that's not easy. But then we saw what we saw tonight, which is, you know, looking like uh, she sustained some sort of knee injury and, and really grimacing and, and hobbling throughout her match against Alizé Cornet and, and continuing to play on. She got the win, which is great. But with the U.S. Open just a few weeks away, it was kind of like, man, like, why are you putting your body through that? You know, especially when you've you've been burned already multiple times of playing through pain and playing through potential injury. So that was a bit surprising decision, I thought, from her. She said after the match that there was no way that she was going to be retiring from it, that, that she was going to finish that match no matter what. I think that we've talked about that kind yeah. of decision making with respect to her and her injury background before on this podcast Ben yeah that she just sort of always seems to more often than not seems to make the wrong call from what we can see from a distance on what on whether or not she should listen to her body or not and I think maybe a lot of it is overcompensating now at this stage of her career with having been criticized for a lot of pullouts and retirements early in her career and now the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction possibly that's just what it seems like from the outside where you see her playing just obviously compromised and you just don't want to see someone play when they're in that sort of shape in that sort of position and, yeah and and you yeah. saw that tonight too in, in the match against Cornet, she rolled uh, she fell over on her ankle so it looked like it was an ankle injury but it ended up being a, a knee problem i suppose but Azarenka actually didn't immediately call the trainer even mm-hmm. though she was hobbling visibly and in physical pain and in tears she didn't call for the trainer until after the second set was over i mean she played i want to say four or five games Without the trainer, yeah. and then called it after the completion of the second set, which she lost um, to Cornet, which again seemed to be a signal to me that that she's like, I don't want to be accused of calling for the trainer, you know, when I'm losing or before the other person's serving or like whatever it is, however it could be construed, depending on what the timing of that timeout would be to where I'm just kind of like, man, I, I really wish that you would just actually do what you always say, which is that you say you don't care what anybody thinks about you. So don't make a decision based on what other people might think because it was it was tough watching her have to fight that one out today yeah definitely but in stanford yeah she's just in a lot of ways she kind of said it was a process of getting back you know and and getting back on to her her top fighting fighting caliber and and shape and 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 game and form the rust is obviously there there's no doubt about that with Mm -hmm. respect to, to her game but, you know, right now, based on everything, is she a player that I'm going to be watching to make a deep run at the U.S. Open? Probably not. And, yeah. I, and I would have said something different maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, I think I was I was saying buy the stock earlier. But, I mean, against Cornet, she doesn't look like herself, doesn't have that same sort of swagger and that same sort of battle test, battle testedness. I mean, she really was an unbelievable competitor for so much of her streak when she was number one and hasn't quite found her footing on that level yet. So we'll see. If she makes a deep run in Montreal or Cincinnati, maybe she gets her feet back under her. But for now, it's it's tough to get too excited about her short-term prospects. The last person who I want to talk to you about, Courtney, in Stanford, was someone who I had never heard of before this week, a 16-year-old who represents Japan, but has lived in Florida since she was three and has a, a Haitian father named Naomi Osaka. So, Courtney, we're going to have some share some audio from Naomi Osaka in a bit. But first, why don't you just tell us, tell the listeners who this girl is and why they should care? Yeah, Naomi Osaka, 
never knew who she was before this week i'll be completely honest she doesn't play the junior ranks just the on the itf circuit but then also at the same time she's under age restrictions so she doesn't play very often for any of us to actually know Mm -hmm. um and to see her so naomi osaka basically played made her main draw debut uh wta main draw debut last week at stanford by qualifying wasn't even supposed to play qualifying was an alternate into qualifying and was able to qualify and in her first round match she beats two 2011 U.S. Open champion Samantha Stozer in three sets. And she does it not just in kind of a Vicky Duvall kind of way, where where Duvall just did it with, like, guile and just kind of... I think that we kind of fell in love with Vicky and her glasses and kind of her awkwardness and things like that and obviously her voice and her personality. But Naomi Osaka did it with an incredibly powerful game for a 16-year-old. And I think that that's what made everybody sit up and take notice. The radar gun was clocking her first serves at, at 116-120, at 16 years old, that's a live arm. She was absolutely blasting her forehand. I think if you go onto the SI tennis site um, and just do a quick search for her name, you'll see a clip of one of her forehands that she absolutely laced against Andrea Petkovic in her second round. And, and Petkovic afterwards was like, did you guys see that forehand? What the hell was that? Like, that was <laughs> insane. Just obviously being complimentary. Naomi Osaka, this is, here's a little bit of like behind the scenes scrambling that happens when a name breaks through that you've never heard of yeah. at, a, at, a, at a tournament. So Sock obviously wins that Stozer match. I'm kind of tracking it. I'm I'm writing other stuff. It's all access hour that day. So so players are coming through. I'm not really paying attention to what's going on in the tennis. And at the time, we didn't really have a proper television feed into the press room. It was actually kind of a secu- the security f- cam feed that everybody kind of got that was on the Stanford site. So I really wasn't paying attention very much to the match. But I saw Twitter blowing up about this kid. Everybody was tweeting about her who was watching. So I turned to the WTA comms guy and I'm like, can we get Naomi? Like, I was like, how good is her English? Because I didn't see the post-match interview, nothing. And she represents Japan. And a lot of Japanese players have really bad English. Exactly. Really tough. And and I, in a getting to know you sort of environment, if their English is rough and I'm kind of busy, it's kind of, I'd rather, I'd probably just rather do my other stuff. And the rep said, how good's your Japanese? And And I took that to mean like, oh no, like my Japanese is horrible. She only speaks Japanese. Maybe that's going to be a little rough, but they bring her in anyway. And yeah, it comes to we come to find out that she's lived in the states since she was three. Perfect English, non-accented, hilarious, like a very dry personality, very sarcastic, very precocious. Was putting reporters like playfully in their place. It was kind of amazing. So I'm pretty happy that Ben's going to append audio from her uh her post-win press conference there i think it'll give you some insight into her personality but yeah she was just an absolute discovery um i talked to her one-on-one later uh just an interesting backstory you know parents came over when she was three has a sister that plays as well who was in doubles uh mari osaka older right older by about a year and a half two years Mm -hmm. and her and naomi osaka just rips on her sister all the time like (laughs) imagine okay lee na and dennis this is a different level of rippage like like she makes lee na and dennis look like they never rip on each other ever which her sister is just like she does that all the time it's just (laughs) how it is i was like okay seems a little awkward but if that works that works so we'll give you some audio from that here so you guys can enjoy naomi how does that win rank in your career it's probably like the second best win of my life, probably. First being when I first beat my sister. So I was like, yeah, on your face. Okay, yeah. Family win is bigger than the <laughs> tour wide win. You know what? It's like every day I'm like, I beat you. So, yeah. 
So what what did the announcer on the court say to you after the match? Uh, he was talking to you. What was he saying? Um. What was he saying? Um. If I say basic stuff, would that be weird? Because <laughs> I don't really know. It's been a lot weirder. Um. He said, "Nice match." I was like, "Yeah, thank you." And that's basically all I could remember. You don't seem too wowed by the occasion. Is that because there's a belief in you that you can win these kind of matches and that this is... Yeah. I don't think anyone goes into a match thinking they can't, they don't deserve to be here. Um, and I feel like I do deserve to be here. So. And which, what is your goal in tennis? What, what do you hope to achieve? The cliche answer, um, being number one and winning as many Grand Slams as I can. Yeah, <laughs> I take offense to that question. How <laughs> soon? Um, mm, I feel like I'm being put on the spot here. How soon? As soon as I can. Is that okay? Okay. So, I mean, oh, did your family come to the States for tennis or some other reason? Yeah, for tennis. Tennis? Yeah. And where in Japan are you from? Osaka. <laughs> Is it just a coincidence that your name and your hometown are the same or is there... No, because everyone that was born in Osaka, their last name is Osaka. <laughs> no, I'm just joking, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's just a coincidence. Did your family come here for your sister to play tennis too? Or? Cause it sounds like it was an achievement to be here. Yeah, but I was obviously better than her. So, so yeah. And who did you admire growing up? Serena. Serena? Yeah. Why? Um, because she's everything. And, like, I just like, like how she's down and then she can come back and win and you never know. Like, I saw her in the room and I was like, oh my god. You saw her where? I saw her in the player's lounge and the I was like, time? oh my god, yeah. Did you get a chance to chat with her at all? Or? I stayed away. Are <laughs> you scared? No. She's big. Not really. The TV makes people look bigger. That's why I'm kind of freaking out. I'm like, huh? Is it going to make me look big? <laughs> so, probably the most interesting press moment that happened in Washington was not quite as adorable as Naomi Osaka. It was when John Isner, after losing in the second round, unexpectedly to Steve Johnson in a third set tiebreak, and went immediately from playing on the secondary court in Washington to the mix zone and shared his feelings where he was not too happy about having been put on that outer court where he hadn't played in years and he's the number one American playing at an American tournament. Uh, that he's done very well at, making the finals twice, semis another two times. So, here... A tournament that's also owned by his management company. Exactly, yeah, owned by Lagardere, who is his agency. So I was very surprised to see Isner out on the outer court. He was surprised as well. And basically, the reason is that International TV had the three prime slots on the stadium court. So if John and they made it clear their interests were not showing him versus Johnson, 
which actually was a little surprising because I thought Burdich Ginepri was a terrible match. I don't know why they'd want to show that, but they did. Anyway, so John did not get picked, and he was none too happy about it. And here's what he had to say. I mean, I lost the match. You played better than me. What, uh, what did not go your way? Last didn't play well enough. Is there anything he did that bothered you? He played well. He played better than me. You've had a lot of success at this tournament, almost all main court. Was it all adjustment getting used to the other one? I didn't like playing out there. I thought that was bullshit, but... What didn't you like about playing out there? I just didn't think I deserved to play on that court. Simple as that. Being American number one, dude. Yeah. I mean, no one else the before. Yeah. Yeah. So, I would say, to start off, Courtney, that I pretty much agree with John. I think that all of his complaints are pretty well-founded for the reasons we said beforehand. And it's not something that would happen in any other country, having the top player at a domestic tournament play on an outer court against another American, too. What, what did you make of his, his comments there? I think he's totally... I mean, if I'm John Isner, I'm pissed. Yeah. And, and rightfully so. This is a tournament that's owned by your own management company that is in America. You are the number one American, not by like you're the number one American, like number 30 in the world. Like you're a top 15 player. Mm-hmm. You're a, ter- a player that's done well at this tournament historically. Final last year. Final last year, exactly. And your place on not center court is is pretty tough. Now, if I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Ben, but he did have an option to play on center court. It's just that it wasn't during – it was going to be a late-night match. Right. It was going to be second on after 8 p.m. Yeah, think. which he didn't want to do. So yeah. obviously there is that. Yeah, so I absolutely understand Isner being pissed. That being said, is it the is it is it good optics to kind of pop off about it after you've lost? Probably not. I mean I think that that, that makes it look a bit whiny and let – you're making excuses. And I don't think that John was making excuses. I think he owned up to the fact that he got beat. and. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And so, but it just looks bad. It, it makes him look like he, he's whining and complaining, especially after, you know, what happened last year at the U.S. Open, being, you know, effectively not booed, but but not having the crowd behind him as yeah. he played a Frenchman out on whatever it was, Grandstand? It was Armstrong. Armstrong? It was Armstrong. Armstrong. And he played Malfis. Malfis had at least half the crowd on his side, right. which Malfis does pretty much everywhere. That's, yeah, that was that's more about just... Malfis than about Isner. That's a Gale thing. That's not an Isner thing. But I'm curious. I'm going to swing this question back to you, Ben. With respect to, the, like, obviously international TV and TV rights, generally, even domestic TV, all of that will dictate orders of play. Uh-huh. I mean, that is that is one thing that, you know, as much as it's so easy to complain about orders of play and where players get scheduled, you know, everyone needs to always take a step back and think about all the competing interests that go into making that document every single night. But that said, like, how much of it do you think was, okay, we're international TV, we would rather watch Thomas Burdick than an American, Mm -hmm. or how much of it was, we would rather watch Thomas Burdick than John Isner? Because of Isner's playing style, are you saying? Like, is this an American-driven thing? Like, we just don't want, we don't really, really want to watch Americans play. Or is this, like, because of the way that John plays, that it's not entirely something that I don't know, people want to pay for. That's a fair question. It's an open question. I have no opinion. I mean, I have an opinion one way or the other, but I'm just curious. That's a fair question. I'm not really sure what the answer is, honestly. I know that, for example, I don't get the sense that, like, Karlovich in particular, I feel like he gets on TV a fair amount, um, or on TV courts, uh, because he's a decent enough name, and I think he is, for what that's worth, much more unwatchable than John on those sort of metrics. Agreed. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, John, obviously, a lot of people 
I get every time I mention a tweet about like an Isner score, like Isner takes the first set, people are like, oh, I can't watch him. That's not tennis. Like, I, I understand that people object to what he, how he plays the game, and that's their prerogative to object. I mean, obviously, everyone tennises differently, and his particular brand of it. Um, it's not appealing to a lot of people. But I just think that, yeah, for this particular case, I think it was... I don't know, because that's the thing. Isner-Johnson, it's also just a much more competitive match than Burdich-Ginepri. But that was never going to be close. That was the thing. But it's not like it. that's ever... But that's not, like, ever an issue of competitiveness. I mean, like, that's such a, a competitiveness of a match, it seems to me, is, like, a totally tertiary concern i mean because if that were the case why do the first two rounds of a slam like have the tv schedules that they do that's true right like why am i watching like i don't know like a a, an andy murray blowout yeah like that is boring no and i and i like watching andy murray and i think that andy murray blowouts are annoying and they're showing him up you know five one in the second set whereas there's some competitive match between two name players but not super lightning rods, yeah. you know, kind of die by the wayside. So No, like today, I think during Canada, I was hearing, I wasn't watching on Tennis Channel for most of it, but I was hearing they were showing a lot of Federer routing Polanski instead of the much more intriguing Rogers-Bouchard matchup happening. <laughs> instead of watching Rogers route Bouchard. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is much more interesting, let's be honest. I guess it's more interesting, but it was a route either way. That's fair. Um, and probably Roger Federer's route style is going to pull in more beans than Shelby Rogers' route style. But right on your shelves. Yeah, no, it's an impressive win. But yeah, so I totally agree with that. The other issue that comes up with this, or Isner comment, was that this happened in the mixed zone that the ATP has been pushing for the last 12 months or so. For those of you who don't know, most prior to this, almost all tournament press conferences happened in interview rooms or designated uh, where the player sits behind a podium or sometimes for a smaller interview room, they'll have like a few chairs in a side room and people sit around and talk in a little circle. And those usually happen at designated time after the match, usually around half an hour to an hour after the match ends. The ATP, however, has been wanting to get more press done with more quickly and to get it over with and have the player... I'm not exactly sure what their motive is other than getting it over with, honestly, or to keep it moving, I guess. And so they've been bringing players to these designated mix zones, which in D.C. was just a tent that was on a public concourse that was roped off. And so Isner was standing there probably about 90 seconds after losing the match, speaking, which happens in a lot of other sports, obviously, that the you know the press goes into the locker room pretty quickly after game ends. But in tennis, it's pretty new. And I don't think that Isner would have been had quite the same sort of hot blood coursing through his veins and would, probably would have calmed down a little bit about the court assignment had he been given the customary uh, half hour after, after, sorry, after the match ended. Courtney, what do you think about how that sort of affects how tennis media has looked this year and might continue to look in the future? Yeah, I don't know if, if the mixed zones will win out and in, in, in terms of a way to to cover the sport. I mean, obviously, it is a way that the sport that's other sports are covered, and that's fine. But the thing is, is that even though, because Ben, as much as, as far as I am aware, and, and like, there's still a cool down period for locker rooms. Like you're not run, like you're not standing there waiting in the locker room as like players are walking in immediately after a game. Like, oh yeah, usually hockey. it's like five minutes, and usually like the coach, like at, at, for hockey, for example, mm-hmm. like the coach talks to the team, and then usually the doors are open five ten minutes after game ends. And also okay. a lot of times, like the press are up in the press box of like a, an NHL arena, for, mm-hmm. which is what I'm most familiar with, which is all the way at the top of the stadium. You have to go all the way down to the bottom. 
So they give you a little bit of time, you know, to get on the elevators and stuff like that. Right. So so having a player there, like, immediately after the match seems like an absolute disaster waiting to happen. Especially for a um, loser. Like, who's a, especially someone who's, like, a high, who's an upset victim. Right. At a tournament they really take seriously. So. Right. Um, you know, but at the same time, obviously, that sort of environment would yield, as it did in your case with Isner, quotes. Yeah. It would yield, you know, play. It would it would allow for and probably get more players to to pop off uh, more than they would after they take a shower, stretch, cool down, take an ice bath, and an hour and a half later go into an air conditioned interview room and go through a formal press conference. So there is that. But I also think that it just takes being burnt once in that mix zone until you just basically completely shut down and go full bull durham generic yeah and the 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 needle swings the other way so i'm kind of more in flavor of just like keeping it the press conference style simply because at least that way look like at least the player has thought about it they can to the extent they want to pop off about something they've thought of a nuanced way to do it as opposed to like just yeah firing off the cuff or else getting absolutely nothing and i think that the whole mix zone thing i think that Generally speaking, it would result in just complete generic cliche talk. And, and I would not want that. And it's hard at mix zones because I'm doing, like I said before, you know, some general US Open preview story stuff. So I'm, so I'm asking some question that's like some sort of off, out of the box US Open topic. When I'm asking it to like, I don't know, uh, Richard Gasquet, and he's like still dripping in sweat from his match, against, which was an unrelated event to what I'm asking about. I don't know. It's harder to go off topic or to have the player think about something a little different, which is part of what I think has made covering tennis so nice is that you do get the opportunities in the general press conferences to, you know, stray away from match play by play type questions. Right. It becomes less about that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't know. It's tough because I can see it from both, both angles. I just think that uh, they just, I mean, if they're going to be mixed zones, they just have to figure out how to do them because right now they're a complete clusterfuck. That's a fair point. That's that's just my opinion of it. I mean, I, every single time that I've been at a tournament where there's a mix zone, it doesn't work. There's no communication, like because certain players will still be press room players and certain players will go mix zone. So and no one really tells you which one's which. Um, and then if you request a play, like if like maybe somebody you didn't want to talk to, but then they play their match and like a Fabio Fanini, for example like plays a match and something crazy happens Mm -hmm. and then you request him like do i run down to mix zone is he up in the press room and if there's a mix zone issue at the same time as a press conference i don't know the way that at least i think that the the newer generation of of maybe tennis reporters cover it especially those of us who are more web-based who have tighter deadlines and are, are responsible for covering more things at once the whole concept of a mixed zone kind of throws a big wrench into that, which if that's what tennis wants to do, if that's what the governing, bo- or, you know, the tours want to do, then fine. But um, there are consequences to the coverage. Yeah, you're going to you get know. different types of quotes. You get different, different types quotes. of stories written off mixed zone. Right. So. And I would, I just would think that they would rather have more fleshed out stories that with containing quotes that more accurately reflect what a player thinks than something that's like off the cuff and explosive and it doesn't reflect what the player thinks but hey he's human and he was pissed off or not even what you know five minutes it's just not what their considered thoughtful answer is let's put it that way because i mean i'm sure john answer did think that it was sure that's fair completely believe that but probably not what um he wants to have next to his name in print right so that's the thing is like if i'm if i'm atp or wta i would rather have the more measured 
you know, long answer be the subject of a article somewhere than breaking John Isner drops F-bombs and is mad that he lost a match. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. not really fair. So I don't know. But it's up to them. If they, they set the rules and how they want to set the rules, is that's fine. But let's not pretend that there aren't consequences to it and doesn't change anything. <laughs> Indeed. Obviously, the biggest news for the tennis world that happened last week was not about any players who were playing in the tournaments. It was about Rafael Nadal firstly pulling out of the U.S. Open Series events in Toronto and Cincinnati with a right wrist injury, which is a new injury for him. And with Lena pulling out of U.S. Open Series and U.S. Open with a knee injury. And so she's been staying in Wuhan and will not be making the trip over uh, which I think bodes forebodingly for the prediction you made, Courtney, about her retiring in the near future a couple shows ago. Now, let's start with Rafa, though, because obviously he's the bigger shock of these two. What, how, how important is this injury, and what does it say about his year going forward and his career going forward, if you want to zoom out that far? It's so funny that you, you, you preface it that way, because I actually think that Lena is the more shocking one. And, and the, this is why, because with Rafa, yes, OK, he's got a right wrist injury and it has to be in a splint. And he's in a race against time to get ready for the U.S. Open where he is defending champion. But in the long scheme, long run scheme of things, I mean, if we take a step back, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, he has an injury, and let's say worse comes to worse, he skips the U.S. Open. Okay, his career goes on, and he's still one of the most dominant players in the game. And well, depending will... on how he recovers from the injury, though. Yeah, it's. I mean, it doesn't sound like it was. I don't know. I mean, unless it's Delpo, Delpo style, and if it's Delpo style, then he's not racing against time to get ready for the U.S. Open. Like, you know what I mean? Like, clearly they seem to think that it, it's it's not uh, not entirely significant, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of think worse comes to worse, Rafa misses the U.S. Open. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that big of a deal, okay. I don't think, personally. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. Fire away. I, I think that a, a defending champ who's in a race for history on the all-time slam count, missing a slam is a big deal. And I think, yeah, that, no, also, I think that also, if he misses it, it completely solidifies Djokovic in the number one ranking for quite a while, so which is also a big deal to the extent that you know people care about these sorts of things in tennis, which I think they do in terms of who's number one. It's a big concern. Yeah, I think that it's a fairly big deal, Rafa missing the U.S. Open. It's the number two player in the world defending champ. No, for sure. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a big deal. It is obviously a big deal. But I'm saying that in the in the way that you prefaced it, that like Rafa was like a bigger deal, like a bigger shock or whatever compared to Lee Na. Because I think with Lee Na, it is a situation where now with this withdrawal, we are talking about, I think, pretty legitimately about about a career on the on the wind down on a very dr- dramatic wind down um, steep wind down yeah yeah very steep and you know that has to me the kind of more it, it, it that resonates more to me than okay. a player regardless of rank regardless of, of unless it was like roger because obviously he's late in his career as well you know that you're gonna see i think i mean i believe it that i'm gonna see rafa play more slams and probably win more slams and play the open again sure, and sure I mean, it's just it's one major. And I and I think that part of this might be a little bit because I've been thinking about it a lot, not fight against it because I know it's the reality of what I do. But at the same time, at least temper it, this propensity and this temptation to be knee jerk about everything and to be hyperbolic about everything. And, and because we're so um, ingrained in like the minutia of this sport on a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week basis. Mm-hmm. And so like with Rafa, 
like obviously yes it's like a huge news story like that that rafael nadal number two defending champion is not gonna might not be playing the u.s open but in the big scheme of things he's probably going to heal and he's probably going to be back to i mean he's shown this in the past probably going to be back to his winning ways you know sooner rather than later so is it as seismic as i feel like it's easy to make it probably not and i think that i'm i in thinking about it that way i've tried to like kind of fight my temptation to blow it up into a big deal that's fair i just think that at this point especially with how her last few months have been that rafa is a more significant presence on his tour than lena is on hers most definitely going forward short term and long term so but i I totally get what you're saying though this is definitely feels like more of a potential uh, end game for lena to put it that way yeah, now, obviously, whereas, we, we don't know. For all we know, she has every intention to keep playing right. forever. But it worrying science in the tea leaves for her, for sure. Yes, whereas like for, to me, it feels like a hiccup for Rafa. But it's a new hiccup, is the thing for me. It's just another people talked for his entire career about his playing style catching up to him in terms of wear and tear. And we hadn't really had, as far as I can remember, any real upper body injuries that I can think of. And so for, for those to start appearing, I don't know, it's a new wrinkle for him on that yeah but i mean at the same time we don't know the extent of this injury we hadn't i mean in terms of like you know is this kind of an overuse injury was this like did he just like whack his his wrist against a post you know we don't know how it happened right you know what i mean so i'm let if he whacked his wrist against a post or his cousin he played like too much playstation and his cousin got mad and like hit him in the hand and like hurt his wrist. That's not, that has nothing to do with Rafa's playing style and yeah. grind on his body. Like, you know what I mean? So I feel like until we know the specifics and, and, and a little bit more, I'm, I'm less inclined to read into it as like Rafa's so fragile. It's like shit happens sometimes, <laughs> you know? And, and it sounds like it was just kind of a, what it sounds like more to me that is that it sounds like I went on vacation for a bunch. I came back and I hit a bunch and this happened. Like, you know what I mean? Like, kind of almost like what happened with Novak in terms of uh, his, el- his like, arm injury in yeah, the spring. Yeah, Monte Carlo, yeah. Yeah, that just felt, that just the way that it all played out, it ended up being kind of a, like, I hit to, I, I, I like, got back on the training court, like, and, and started practicing on clay, like, and I overdid it, and I hurt my arm. That can happen. That can happen. So another non-Washington or Stanford story that emerged this week in tennis was on Andy Roddick getting rejected for his bid for a U.S. Open wild card. He had applied for a wild card to play doubles with his buddy Marty Fish, who has been on a long hiatus from the tour due to various health issues. And Andy Roddick was rejected because because he had retired and did not announce his intentions to return with, with the doping program as it was concerned at least three months before the event he intended to come back at the U.S. Open, and Andy, in his own podcast, which is for Fox Sports, was none too happy about this. We talked about playing doubles at the U.S. Open from the time we were 15 years old, and my singles got in the way, his singles got in the way. Um, we, we, we both probably did better than we ever expected to uh, in singles, and, and long story short, we never got that chance to play doubles like we wanted to uh, when we were kids in high school. So, uh, And I'm just pumped at this point. I was like, we're going to have a blast. We'll play some doubles. It'd be a one-time thing. Um, there were no thoughts of a comeback of any other sort for me. Um, that, that ship has sailed. It's not something anybody needs to cling to at all. Uh, it was what it was. It was a double tournament with a great friend of mine. I wanted to see him back on the court, be happy in that space because he deserves it. He deserves uh, a, a proper 
uh, last memory, if it is that, and if not, maybe it's a, maybe it would have been a springboard into into playing more singles and 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 kind of getting back into tennis, which would have been a win, also. But since I actually did what they want you to do and file your papers, file your retirement papers officially, um, I am not eligible for a U.S. Open wild card, which fucking sucks because I was looking forward to it on uh, on a lot of different levels. So, Courtney, what do you make of this whole thing? Should the rules allow Andy to play some doubles with his friend. I love Andy. I love the sentiment behind Andy's decision of wanting to play with Marty, that he wanted Marty to have positive feelings about being on a tennis court again and that they could just go have fun. And it's something that they talked about when they were high schoolers together when they were 16. Love all the sentiment. But no, you can't just like get back into the game without being under the drug drug testing protocols. Sorry. That's just kind of how it is. And, and I would be surprised to hear if if people thought otherwise honestly no one thinks that andy's doping no one thinks that there's anything in his system that would be performance enhancing to play freaking doubles with marty fish just for you know shits and giggles at the open but the rule makes sense i think that the thing that does and i I totally get this from roddick that that pissed him off and it is admittedly like a total loophole in the rule is that if roddick had never filed his formal retirement papers then he would be allowed to play yeah He could have just let his ranking fall off naturally and you would still be under WADA drug testing protocols. You just would never get tested because you were never ranked high enough. Right. And you wouldn't be necessarily subject to the the whereabouts rule and all these sorts of things because your ranking would be so low. Yeah. But like, because you were still not formally retired and a, and a part of the ATP, you would still be under the protocols. And so – that is kind of a glitch. And I can understand Roddick being pissed because he's basically like, I, f- I signed my formal retirement papers in order to help the tour, in order to help my fellow man, because it helped everybody else's ranking that was behind me at the time. And I'm getting fucked by it, basically, is what Randy Roddick said yeah. on Fox Sports. <laughs> yeah. he, had some, he had some choice words. And I, I talked briefly to Marty Fish for the story <laughs> that I did about this. And Marty said that, you know, he hasn't, he got notified in, I think, February that he was no longer needing to do the whole whereabouts thing because his ranking had fallen off so much that they essentially didn't care about him. I mean, earlier in January of this year, Pat Rafter played doubles at the Australian Open. Francisco Roig um, played with Rafael Nadal in Doha. Roig, who's like 46 and hadn't played like a match in like years. It's, I want to say 2006, but I could be wrong on that. And uh, yeah, he was allowed to play and everybody's like, how can he be allowed to play? Because he never formally retired. Yeah. McEnroe played mixed doubles at Wimbledon, I think seven years after retiring and played with Steffi Graf and he got annoyed at Steffi because she pulled out when they made the semifinals. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a weird sort of loophole that it doesn't apply to everybody. I mean, theoretically the loophole should be closed. I guess if you believe what you're saying, uh, if you agree with Courtney that, you should need to be under the testing program to get back in. You know, just say if you're inactive for 12 months, you have to come yeah. back and get in the testing program for three months before playing again. I don't know. I just think, I mean, I I, I understand the rule in theory. It's just, I just, it sucks for Andy, basically, that he obviously is not. I mean, if you've watched him play world team tennis, you know <laughs> that this guy is not trying to get a step up on the competition. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not exactly at at peak uh, form on any. I don't sense think of it. I don't think beer and chips are uh, performance enhancing. Last time I checked, so. no, sadly not. Um, but yeah, but so I just think it would have been a cool thing, and uh, it's too bad that the rule is the way it is. Yeah, I would have. Yeah, I I appreciate his predicament. I think the rule could definitely be lessened, but I understand where it could be abused. I just think that if you come back, you could take 
I don't know why it couldn't be a one month minimum. I don't know, even though it's obviously very situational to what this particular example was. But I, I, I sort of like spontaneity and like like Rafter deciding to play doubles at the Australian Open was fun. He, I don't right. think he decided more for more than a week before it happened. So yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it, or even like okay, give give advance give one month advance notice. Which again, Roddick, I don't think would have qualified for. But give it was one just month. One month exactly. Was much. it just okay? Yeah. So give one month notice, but you're but you get mandatory testing after every match. Yeah. Like you know, or some you know something to kind of cover instances like this because Andy Roddick is right. It, it it sucks for the game. This could have been something that would have been awesome. Like, what if they got a wild card and pulled the Bryans in the first round? Like that would be amazing. Like it would just be one of those like really sweet, nice tennis moments. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, does it feel like sometimes it's tennis getting in its own way? Maybe, but at the same time, does it also feel like it's tennis being professional? And, and not, you know, kind of allowing these bits of sentimentality to drive decision making. Yeah, a little bit. And that's not bad either. That's true. And, and part of it's interesting is that this is all because tennis is an Olympic sport. They have to follow these water regulations. This, I mean, like Andy, if he was a retired baseball player, he could come back immediately and play Major League Baseball or I think pretty much any other league sports. I think I think just even, as long as it's consistent with baseball's testing protocols. Yeah. So, whatever test, whatever they are. Yeah. So I don't know. I also think, and this is a little bit of a knock on doubles. I don't think that performance enhancing would do much in doubles because doubles is relatively not. And obviously I'm sure it could do something, but relatively, I don't think people are trying to cheat their way to the top in doubles with steroids. I can't imagine what that would do. You're so naive, Ben. I'm so naive. You're so young. Doubles is a steroid problem, I realize. You're so young. I know. So naive. (laughs) Word word of Bernstein would never be this naive. (laughs) Because we have not in a while, Courtney and I thought it would be a cool idea to take a number. If you guys are new to the show and haven't heard us do it, because we haven't done it in weeks, months, maybe, take There's a number. It's kind of an actual news. I know. <laughs> oh, it's weird. Been, like distracted by. <laughs> take a number. And we, there is news this week, but we just wanted to shoehorn it in because we know you guys enjoy it. And we enjoy it, too. Um, and it keeps us honest, honestly, about the rankings. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it before, take a number is where we pick a number between 1 and 100 and talk about the player who corresponds to that number on each of the ATP and WTA rankings. Ready to rock, Courtney? Always ready to rock, Ben. And our number between 1 and 100 is... Do-do-do... 87. Oh, God. This is why we don't do this. <laughs> we always oh. get the highest numbers... In this. We're good on the WTA side, guys. Don't worry. Okay. Don't tune out quite yet. Okay. We're not horrible on the men's side either. Courtney, who is the woman ranked number 87 this week? It's a woman who we discussed, name dropped just very briefly earlier in this podcast, and who is actually at a career high number 87 without having to touch a racket for a few weeks, although it's very unfortunate that she hasn't been able to touch a racket because it is Victoria Duval. Oh, boy. Okay. Who had announced after Wimbledon that she had been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and is currently in treatment and uh, based off of Facebook posts and everything like that seems to be doing well. But uh, definitely a player who I think kind of captured all of our hearts when she first took the court at the U.S. Open in 2012 against Kim Kleisters and uh, just was thoroughly outplayed but seemed to be enjoying herself. (laughs) And 
uh, was nothing but love for Vicky Duvall. And then uh, last year, beating Sam Stozer at the Open, made made the rounds. You know, has a great backstory, or not a great backstory, but kind of a very dramatic backstory. Yeah, uh, was on Leno. All okay, these sorts let of me, things. Let me say who the guy is before you get too carried away. With okay, this. the guy who is her dance partner for this is Paul Henri Mathieu, uh, who's a real person. He is a real person. I love Paul Henri. Okay. Paolo. So let's let's before we get to that, just because I wanted to say them both. Let's finish talking about Vicky. What did he make of that? We actually did talk about this randomly on this show. What did he make of that whole, how her 2013 U.S. Open and the ensuing hype, how that all unfolded for her? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I I, I don't generally know. I mean, obviously the spotlight was on her after 2013, and especially when you have a player who's just so charismatic as she is and just good humored and also has, has the dramatic backstory that she has. Her father, who uh, was injured pretty traumatically yeah. during the Haiti earthquake. He's a doctor, he's a, phys- a physician back in, in Haiti. She was also held at gunpoint, knife point, I can't remember, when she was young, along with some cousins in Port-au-Prince by, by some burglars. Kidnappers, I don't know. Yeah. Kidnappers, kidnappers. And just for her to be the kind of bubbly, <laughs> SpongeBob SquarePants loving girl that she is in, in light of everything that she's seen already in her very, very young life is uh, is really remarkable and very inspiring. And so I think that after she beat Sam and, and kind of the story came out and she was making, you know, I mean, she was on Leno. Like, that's crazy that was out you know? of nowhere yeah i mean that's 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 quite something um and people kind of started talking about her and and i think that um it couldn't have been easy you know uh for her to deal with that i don't know if she's had to deal with pressure i don't think that we look at a vicky duval and say oh she's the future of american tennis and she needs to arrive sooner rather than later but you know people were paying attention to her results in a way that they weren't before yeah, her second round match at the U.S. Open was against Hantikova, I believe. And it was on court 17, I think. I think it got moved there. And it was packed from the beginning. I mean, that kind of thing happens at a Grand Slam tournament when there's a young sensation. They really, really get a big spotlight on them there. And so even just that, I'm sure, was overwhelming for her. And going on Leno. And Leno is like a very, for those of you who are not Americans, Leno was. It's no longer on the air. The Tonight Show is a very, very high-profile thing it's very very mainstream very middle america sort of audience for that and not something that most tennis players ever get on i mean probably the williamses have been on there maybe a couple times over their careers i'm guessing maybe i doubt that like a federer and a doll ever made it on there no they they, they were on letterman they weren't on leno right because usually everybody makes it who wins the tournament on letterman because it's based in new york and yeah. they can just go but leno was based in la although now it's based back on new york with uh, jimmy, uh, jimmy fallon, fallon. yeah yeah but it's a big deal I mean, it's a big slot to get. (laughs) So that was very surprising that she got that and good get for her, um, I guess, to the extent that it leads to anything. Although, I mean, I don't think, as of what I recently heard, she didn't have a paid clothing sponsor um, this year. She was wearing 11 from Venus, but it wasn't sort of a paid contract. So I'm not sure it really made her star turn in terms of making her career more significant. But, I mean, obviously, she's still really new to the tour, and that's part of what made this news uh, so tough. And it happened, she announced it, right at the end of Wimbledon, or near the end of the last few days, and she had apparently gotten her diagnosis during Wimbledon qualifying. And Which kept... you talked to her. I talked to her Wimbledon there. Yeah, I talked to her, I'm guessing, based, I was trying to piece it back together afterwards. I'm sure I talked to her before and after the diagnosis, and she kept playing the whole time, and she was having back problems during the tournament during the qualifying tournament, which I'm not sure if they were related or not to anything that was going on with this part of her health. But yeah, and she kept playing, and she won a main draw match, and for her to stick in the tournament, like that was really pretty remarkable to uh, to see what she'd done 
once you knew afterwards what the behind the scenes story was. So it's, she's one of those players who's really, really hard not to pull for just because everything she's been through and her general delight and joy, which she brings to the door <laughs> to, to borrow a phrase of another player. So hopefully it's been a, it's been a rough time for tennis players recently with this disease. It's the same thing that Elisa Klebanova and Ross Hutchins both had. Although Vicky caught hers at a much younger age, she's only 18. So best of luck to her coming forward and know that everybody's definitely rooting for her. And it'd be very hard not to. And also SpongeBob is awesome. Exactly. SpongeBob is very cool. And yeah, we're not supposed to root from the press box, but I think everybody's pretty much rooting for Vicky Duvall. And, and thankfully, you know, she, she does seem to be doing, at least handling the treatment well. Yeah. And, and is remaining incredibly positive as, as she kind of always has been. So uh, best of luck to Vicky Duvall. Indeed. And Paul Unrima too, Courtney, he was probably somebody who was a more relevant person around the 40 deuce era of things. I'm That's guessing. Correct. So what do you, so you were probably paying more close attention. I'm blanking on, I don't have any memories of him that jump out immediately from that, from the sort of prime of his career. But what do you remember about Paul Henri Mathieu? Paul Henri Mathieu, I remember because back in the 42s days, he kind of had like a weird, like not a weird, but a bit of a cult following because a lot of people thought he was cute. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of like the underrated, shy French guy who was like, you know, ranked in the top 40 and, you know, somewhat relevant. Ranked number 12 in 2008. Wow, it's crazy. There you go. Up uh, top 15. You know, I mean, I think that his most memorable turn as a player was Davis Cup. Yeah. The thing is, is that Paul Arima too is probably best known for something most people probably don't want to be known for, mm-hmm. which is basically a pretty major choke with Davis Cup on the line. Um, so that was, I think, where a lot of people kind of felt a soft spot from Paul Arima too. Because he, it was a decisive fifth rubber against the Russians in 2002, playing at home in the final, uh, playing at home in Bercy, and a decisive fifth rubber, and it was supposed to be Kafelnikov for the Russians, but um, he struggled. So it was Mikhail Yuzhny, Russia's number three, who took the court against a 20-year-old Paul Henri Matu. Which, let's face it, this is so lamb to the slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> but he like. Builds a two sets to love lead and loses three six two six six three seven five six four. Oh. And I'm reading here from the Davis Cup write up, which maybe that maybe things have changed in the last you know twelve years, but it says this is the only time in the history of the competition that a two set deficit has been turned around in a live fifth rubber of a final. <laughs> Sad. Sad. He does have that sort of so. thing. He did have that sort of whole among tennis fans. The thing that kind of Mahout has in more recent generations. Yeah. sort of pity fandom in this weird, (laughs) very French way. He is so pity fandom. Yeah. Yeah. He is straight up pity fandom. And where, you know, he was kind of a guy that you always kind of wanted to do well just to, like, make up for all of that stuff. And and he he went through a really bad, I think it was knee injury. Yeah. Knee surgery. um, Bad leg injury. And there's actually a really good... Uh, if you speak French, a uh, documentary that I feel like Canal Plus did uh, last year or the year before, before he gets his comeback, mm-hmm. detailing everything. That's worth a look, wor- worth a rewatch. It's, it's quite good. Yeah. Um, on Paul Arima too. But uh, but yeah, that's kind of. And then of he PHM. came back. He came back and he won a fifteen thirteen. I want to say match against Isner at the French Open in twenty thirteen. I believe. Or no, sorry, twenty twelve. At 2012, he won that very long match against Isner, um, which is Isner against another pitied Frenchman. 
and in an epic and he came back from that and i'm honestly surprised that he's ranked as high as 87 because he has not been a anywhere near relevant player at all over the past no. 12 months that i can think of yeah not that 87 is brimming with relevance but I'm, i was surprised to see him there and he's 32 years old now probably doesn't have long left but made a very solid career for himself and getting to you know top 12 made the second week of a slam six different times at three different slams so you know solid career nothing spectacular but i don't think i would call him an underachiever per se because i don't think when he was at his absolute best that it was really even though underachieving and and french tennis seem to go hand in hand a lot of descriptions i don't think Mathieu is quite in that grouping i wouldn't say i would agree with you i mean he was a solid tennis player Mm -hmm. but he didn't have weapons yeah. And and he was kind of his he's kind of one of those players that that kind of came around that time where weapons became it wasn't enough to just be solid. Yeah. You know, and so yeah, I mean he'll be remembered fondly. To the extent he'll be remembered, sure. Yeah. Oh, so mean. That was sorry. I should probably <laughs> have more pity. I'm sure Eugenie will remember him. Eugenie will always remember him. There you go. So that was number 87, Victoria Duval and Paul Henri. Matthew. So thank you guys for listening to yet another episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with the show when you're not listening, you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can also follow on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can subscribe to our feed on iTunes or whatever your podcast app of choice is. And you can send us any questions you might have for an upcoming episode on email, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Courtney, I was a little bit reluctant to contact you to do an episode tonight because I know that you've been very busy the last few nights. So busy. So busy with re-watching a television show from a decade ago or so. More a than decade that. Two decades. Ago? Oh my God. 21 years ago, Ben. 21, 21 years. years. Okay. Tell people what it's been like for you rewatching The X Files. Yes. If you follow me on Twitter, I just have to say I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry that you're following me. And, like, <laughs> apology accepted, by the way. Yeah, you're, exactly. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm sorry that your, your, your timelines are now inundated by something you probably don't care about, but it is something that I care about deeply, which is a television show called The X Files, which is, yes, 21 years old. It celebrated its 20 year anniversary last year. And it was just a show, I don't know why it started to start re-watching it I feel like maybe it had to do because like if you guys haven't watched it there's a, a fantastic miniseries uh BBC miniseries called The Fall which stars Gillian Anderson who obviously plays Scully um Dana Scully in the X-Files anyways season two of The Fall is debuting soon so I think I had The Fall on the brain and I just finished Breaking Bad which is created and produced and directed by and a lot of the episodes written by Vince Gilligan, who was a writer on the X-Files. So there was just a lot of like X-Files like tendrils out there in the pop culture. So I think that that's what brought me back to decide, you know what, I'm going to sit down and watch nine episodes of this show. Or I'm sorry, nine seasons of this show. And I will say, you didn't like Breaking Bad, did you? No, I didn't really like it at all. Um, I saw like, I mean, there are certain like um, directorial it, things that I really liked and, and some of the writing was good but generally speaking I, I I it pains me to say it but I don't generally like anti-heroes and I don't generally like shows that are built around anti-heroes I like my heroes to be heroes okay. <laughs> and so yeah I didn't really like kind of Breaking Bad like I just like I don't 
really love Mad Men, although I can appreciate the art that's involved with Mad Men and be entertained by it. I don't love it. Same with Sopranos. Like, I loved it for, like, three seasons, and then I, I just was like, you know what? I'm done dealing with an antihero. Yeah, so I started to rewatch it, and... I just was telling Ben this a little bit before we came online that the most interesting thing about the whole process so far, I'm in, I'm in the middle of season three, is that, okay, the X-Files is basically what introduced me to internet communities. <laughs> like, I never, I didn't get online until I really went to college, which would have been a few years into when X-Files was happening, and then immediately found, like, forums, mm-hmm. like, X-Files forums, and those were the only forums that I read. It wasn't like I was in the forums for, like, a bunch of different TV shows or sports or anything. So I was reading, the, and so I was in the forums and, like, whatever, and the whole concept of, like, shipping, you know, like, wanting Mulder and Scully to be together, like, that was, that kind of took off with X-Files, the idea that you shipped two fictional characters on the internet. I know that it happened with Slash with like Spock and Captain Kirk, but whatever. Yeah, but like the thing with X-Files though is like when you go back and watch it, the internet is so not a part of it and 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 obviously cell phones are just happening. So there's just kind of a lot of kind of that feel of like primitive information gathering, which is quite fun, I think. Nowadays you feel like everybody can just google everything and that's yeah. fine. So there that's that's been a very fun thing to kind of like go back and and just be reminded of. But I don't know, it's just been fun because it was like a show that was on for 9 seasons, which is 9 years of my life, which is a good chunk of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been pretty cool to like go back and rewatch it and be like, man, this show totally still holds up. And the characters are still compelling. Some of the stories are still compelling. The episodes, like some of the monster of the week stuff is still the, some of the scariest stuff I've ever seen on television. Even some of the ghetto CGI is still like intellectually some of the like creepiest stuff that I've seen. Like I just had to pause when Ben called to do this podcast this episode called War of the Corporophages, which is surrounds cockroaches. And the scene is like this guy who's like tripping out on on um, drugs, basically. And he's watching cockroaches burrow into his arm. Yeah. And it's like epic. Like they show it like five different times, like five different cockroaches burrowing into holes in his, his like underarm. And I'm like, that is disgusting. It's amazing. <laughs> like it's I don't know. But anyways, it's been fun. I all of all this is to say, I'm sorry that I'm tweeting about it, but I'm gonna be tweeting about it a lot because there are six more seasons, and these are like 24 episode seasons. So oh, there so, you go. I'm gonna hear so much about this in Cincinnati, aren't I? No, you're not gonna hear about it. I'm just gonna be sitting. I'm just gonna be watching it myself, like swooning, like oh, did you, oh, like Mulder and Scully just totally exchanged a look, and it's like it, I don't know. It's like revertigo. It's like going back to like my. <laughs> 16 17 year old self and like enjoying the show as i did when i was younger and in that way it's been kind of a neat little time machine there was something interesting you said about this pre-show that i thought was interesting and if you want to sound off on this you can or you don't have to is it but the way you're watching it now is very different than the way anyone would have been able to watch it in the mid 90s when it came out is that you're binge watching it essentially you know lining up these episodes watching them at your own pace and unless you had i guess vcr'd every single episode and have them on well-cataloged VHS tapes, even then you wouldn't be able to do this quite now. And sort of how does this whole binge-washing experience reflect on the monoculture of today or however you want to take that? Oh my gosh, it's so true. Okay, because here's the thing, like when X-Files came out, right? Okay, like first of all, it was like, always on the verge of being canceled especially in the first season nobody really knew what to do with it and it was airing on fox which was and it was just when fox was kind of pretty fledgling network at the time yeah exactly they had nothing they had the simpsons and nothing else and so they were they kind of let 
Chris Carter, who is the creator of X-Files, kind of go with it because they didn't have anything else and it got okay ratings, but not great. But anyways, so yeah, the thing, so when the show came out, actually the first couple of seasons, remember this is pre-DVD, this is VHS, they didn't actually release the entire season on VHS. They actually selected, like you would buy the X-Files, they would maybe be like two or three box sets that you could buy each one containing three VHS tapes and each episode, each VHS tape containing two episodes. So the producers or whoever would decide which episodes to actually release to you. So you couldn't, you literally could not binge watch, even if you like didn't watch it. And then you went and bought all of the VHS tapes that released, they were missing episodes. That's one thing that's totally different from how we consume television these days. But as most people know, like I am a total binge watcher. I will, you know, like I think Ben and I were talking about Origins of the New Black, which we binge watched during the French Open. And because of binge watching the way that like TV is now like produced and and not produced, but um, delivered, it's totally serialized, right? Like if you miss an episode, because it's just basically miniseries is now like if you miss an episode, so much happens in one episode that if you miss it, you don't know what happened. And because of binge watching, episodes are designed to be cliffhanger type things to force you to watch the next one immediately. And so with X-Files, the thing that I've known that has really, really struck me watching it now, binge watching it like one after another is that there will be these arcs, right? Like two or three episode arcs because X-Files deals with like an alien mythology as well as like standalone monster of the week, kind of more CSI type episodes that you'll go through these like really epic like strings of two or three episodes that all string together and tell the bigger story. And so then you hit the click and you click the next episode and it's like some dumb like <laughs> like a uh, storyline that has nothing to do with the thing that you just saw and has nothing to do with the thing that you're about to see in the next episode and it's totally jarring. That's when you I kind of stop and realize like wow, like things have changed a little bit because back then it was 24 episodes spaced out across if you include hiatuses and everything probably like 36 weeks. Yeah, probably. Right? 30 to 40 weeks just the summer break. Yeah. And um in that time, you also got more opportunity to kind of process the information, more time to discuss, you know, what happened. Those forums were really, you know, great because you could go in and talk to people about it and, and episodes got seven days to breathe. And now the way that we consume not just like, you know, television, but even sports and everything, it's just one after another. Like, do we really have time to stop and process what we're seeing or is everything just visceral? And if it if it if you respond to it viscerally, then it resonates with you as opposed to like some letting an idea kind of linger in your brain for like a week. It's an interesting thing as it applies to tennis too to bring it back to topics of this show, which is not really necessary. But I mean, tennis the way it's set up, tournaments are kind of binge watchy things. Yeah, totally. To like when you compare it to like an NFL season, where you have one game each Sunday and it's really spaced out, and you have time to get really obsessive over little minutia. I mean, basically, at a Grand Slam, you can have 36 hours between a semifinal and a final. For NFL, to use that example, between the conference championship game and the Super Bowl, you get two whole weeks. Yeah. So it's a very, very different setup, and it's really interesting how that whole sort of thing, I don't know how it affects sports, because I do think that in this modern era, NFL hasn't suffered. I don't think people are impatient with it. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how that would... I don't know if there is some cross-comparison yeah. to be made. I mean, I think that ten- tennis is basically House of Cards or Orange is New Black, right? Yeah. Everything's kind of released at effectively the same time, and you just go through it in order in a very short amount of time. It's exhausting. Where, 
and it's exhausting. Like, yeah, like, I mean, it took Ben and I a concerted effort to get through Oranges and the New Black. Even though we wanted to get through it, we were, like, covering a slam at the same time. Like, it was very tiring. But whereas, like, NFL is kind of like, I don't know, like, scandal? Or, like, anything that's on network TV, like, the good one. Like, where it is, you have an episode, and then you got to wait six, seven days until you see another episode. And it it isn't as built around binge watching but obviously binge watching and the concept of binge binge watching affects how those shows are dealt with but uh, and how they're written and and then eventually how they're presented after the season's over but yeah you're right though it's not like it affects nfl i i do think that the inability to kind of stop i mean the inability to stop and think about things in tennis is incredibly frustrating it is like a result happens and let's say it's a big upset, right? And the result happens. And in less than 24 hours, a lot of the times, that result becomes obsolete. Yeah. Right? Like a... Russell has to go play Cole Schreiber in the third round, you know? And he's out. And that result is over. Right. Yeah, but even with Russell Cole Schreiber, that was like, they got about 48 hours, right? Because it was at a major? Mm-hmm. Or are you talk right? Are you talking yeah, about... it was at a major, yeah. Wimbledon, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they got 48 hours. Like, you talk about a result like... Oh, great match from Venus Williams beats Victoria Azarenka in the second round of Stanford. In less than 24 hours, she's playing Pekovic, and then she loses. And then that whole result, like, you don't really get to really let it marinate and let it air out and let yourself think about, like, was it significant? Was it not? Maybe it wasn't significant, but maybe it was. I don't know. But the the pace of tennis and the the lack of any time to just stop and think and take a breath is is really i think it does the sport a disservice it does i'm not sure there's any way to change it to make it better with the way the tournaments are structured now i don't know how you would improve that and i don't think tennis players need three four days between matches or more to recover physically for sure but yeah it's, it's an interesting sort of comparison to make there and it's all inspired by Mulder and scully as is everything in life they're the best. They are the best. They are just so the best. They are the best, like, pair of leads in a television show. I'm not because that's, like, super hyperbolic, and I have to think of it through. But they are just incredible. And just to think that it was, like, just Jillian Anderson's second time in front of the camera. She got cast, and Chris Carter had to fight for her because, like, Fox wanted somebody, like, traditionally hot. Obviously, as it turns out, Jillian Anderson, totally hot. <laughs> and, like, David Duke, and this, their chemistry from the first time they set eyes on each other. That lasted nine years. It was incredible. It was awesome. So I'm going to go leave you to get back to your show now. (laughs) And we will leave the listeners as well. Thank you guys for listening once again. And we will talk to you soon. Probably in Cincinnati next time. I'm guessing. So we'll see you from Ohio. Bye, guys. Bye. Stop.